it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the program. I'm Tom Sumner, your host, and uh, we got a great show coming up. We're going to get right into it here in a couple of minutes. We're going to talk about uh, Michigan's clean water and whether it's at risk during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll have that conversation during the third half of our three-hour tour coming up at 11 o'clock with Nathan Murphy, who is uh, Environment Michigan's state director. And before that, in the second hour, 12 Seconds of Silence is the name of a book by Jamie Holmes. Jamie will join us during the second hour to talk about how a team of inventors, tinkerers, and spies took down a Nazi super weapon considered the, well, it's described as the first smart weapon. Anyway, uh, but before that, coming up in just a minute or two, uh, I'm going to talk with um, Martin Shanels, who is the uh, author of, uh, well, we're going to talk about utopia in work, love, all aspects of life, and uh, his take on it. Um, it's an encore uh, presentation, if you will. Anyway, I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll enjoy those uh, the guests we have lined up for you today. It's always um, interesting. Um, some of the people that we get to talk to is uh, always fascinating, and I'm, I'm of course looking forward to my conversation here in a minute with uh, Martin Shanels, But uh, I'm I'm really fascinated by this uh, this World War II treatment. Twelve seconds of silence uh, coming up in just a little bit. Anyway, um, if you miss anything on the Tom Sumner program, you can always go to our website, go to the archive, and uh, search around. It's it's a little easier if you know what day and time the interview that you missed was and and that you're looking for but you can scroll around and find some interesting things in there in any event and of course uh, the show repeats all day online until tomorrow's new show so 
If you miss part of this show, you can listen later in the day. Also, uh, if you listen to us on 92.1 FM from 9 a.m. to noon, you can also hear us from 9 p.m. to midnight weekdays on WFOV. guest this hour should be uh, joining us uh, by phone shortly. Um, he is uh, the author of a new book called Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. He is an anthropologist on the faculty of Appalachian State University. He has previously taught at Columbia University, John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins uh, University, and the University of Pennsylvania, and is the author of The Paradox of Power from 1993, An Intimate Exclusion in uh, 2003. His uh, newest book uh, is uh, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. I think he's about to join us uh, by phone. Martin Shane Halls. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Martin, did I say your last name right? You did. You Good. did. Good. I've been practicing. <laughs> and it looks just a little bit different than the way it's pronounced, but I think that's uh, an Eastern European thing. It's a, it's a German thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, ha- I have to ask, because I grew up at a time when most of the people that I know thought Woodstock was utopia. And they've been watching uh, movies about dystopia ever since. <laughs> what, what, <right. laughs> for the purposes of, of your book and our discussion, what is utopia? All right. Well, that's the uh, really important question. Um, the first thing I want to say about utopia is that um, many of your listeners might hear the word and think that it's something fanciful, something dreamt up by... Um, a bunch of uh, people who have nostalgia for Woodstock, which is fine, actually. <laughs> it should be. But, but, but most I people to think it's in, like the Garden of Eden, some kind of place of perfection where, you know, everything is, is beautiful and nothing ever goes wrong. Yeah. N- uh, Until no, it does. Not, a, not, a, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. No, it's a, it's a place that is based upon the way that life is lived now, um, but it takes life the way that it is lived now and, and tweaks it in various ways. And it also is based upon what we know about human beings and our nature. So I've made my utopia based upon what is actually possible and not just fanciful. Um, and so in a nutshell... One of the things that I advocate as a central solution to our happiness as individuals and as a society is equality, um, something that's been in the news lately um, or for quite a few years. Equality in all domains of society, in the workplace, um, in the family, in relationships, um, and in love. And equality is not new as an idea, of course, by any means. But what I did want to do that was new is to give some social science backing to the advocacy of equality. So I didn't just want to say, well, equality is important because I think it's important. Um, And what I show 
in the book is that equality leads to happiness and leads to the greatest happiness for people um, and that it's actually inequality and hierarchy that leads to anxiety and depression, both for people at the bottom of the status hierarchy, but also for those at the top. And what that means is it strengthens the urgency of establishing equality throughout society, because without it, all of us will suffer from being in an unequal society. And so I do that um, advocacy of equality, and I use biology going back into evolution to look at what um, evolved to make us as animals happy and what makes um, animals sad, fearful, anxious, depressed. And it's... Are you to- hierarchy? Are, are, are utopia and happiness intertwined, and are they defined differently for individuals than for the collective? Um, not necessarily. I because one of the things that we tend to do in America, being uh, often very individualistic society is that we think that the happiness that we feel or the sadness that we feel is related only to our own individual circumstances. And that's often true, but what we don't acknowledge enough of is that the social conditions um, in which we find ourselves and that we share with other people also um, have a profound effect on our happiness. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm playing around with the nature of society, making it more equal um, so that, uh, just to give a specific example, you know, so many of us live with so much profound anxiety about um, whether we'll find work, whether we'll find work that is creative and meaningful to us, whether we'll be able to keep it, and that intense fear that if we lose work, we won't be able to survive. And I want to change that because that's such a unnecessary kind of anxiety that people are put under. Um, and if we get rid of that work anxiety, then we can live a much happier life, both as individuals and as a society. I, and, and, and one of the reasons that last piece is true, by the way, is um, and we all know this, as humans, we can be compassionate, and we there, there are some cultures where people actually talk about a contagion of emotions so that if someone else is unhappy, we feel unhappy too. And I think that's actually really true. So it has to be something that affects not only other people but ourselves as well. Um, one of the, the phrases, I was reading a press release about about your book, and there's a, a phrase used to refer to you as a psychological anthropologist. <laughs> what mm-hmm. what what is that? Because I think of anthropology as being, you know, stuff we dig up. Um, yes. Well, anthropology one branch is the digging up part, and um, that's archaeology. And I, I'm actually I like that branch of anthropology, but I'm the part of anthropologists who studies living people. Um, we call it cultural anthropology. And so I went to China 
and lived there for a year and studied people. And I studied um, psychology within a cultural context. And what I became interested in was shame in China, shame and face. Yeah. Another another phrase that that I I wanted to um, pick apart a little bit before we we dig into uh, the book some more is the phrase evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. Is that exactly as it sounds are 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 we evolving as people or is it that much historic uh um biology that that we're literally including darwin's theory here um what it means is just to acknowledge that we as humans are animals that were evolved um, from primates and that we have, therefore, many of the same shared characteristics that other animals have. And if we study those characteristics, then we can use those characteristics for thinking about what we're capable of doing socially. One of the things that we know is that humans... um, like many, but not all other animals, are very social, and and we need interaction with other humans to feel um, a sense of happiness and a sense of contentment. And we need a kind of affirmative act- interaction with other people where we we are not threatened, where we're not in a fight, but where we get along and have ourselves and our ideas um, respected and affirmed. You know, it's kind of a recognition of the idea of respect. Um, we're not the only animals to to desire respect. And it, it but yet historically, uh, people have tended to to group with like people, and it 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 makes that equality and respect uh, a little bit more of a challenge. It does, but I'm going to do a very quick um, anthropology lesson here. Well, <laughs> so it, I can play it, teacher for a minute. No, I no, I'm hoping you will, and we and we have some time to do that. Yeah. I'm just a little concerned because we have about a minute until we have to go to break. Oh, is all it right. something you can tackle? I'll do the in? very quick version. Okay, I'll do a very quick version, then we'll go to break and maybe come back. Um, we. Uh, evolved 200,000 years ago, and from that time until only about 6,000 years ago, we lived an egalitarian cooperative life. So we've done it for most of our history on Earth. And what you talk about, um, the kind of grouping and the meanness that we see around us today, is an aberration rather than um, the real human legacy. Well, that's encouraging. Let me. Uh, so that's a good. That's a that's a <laughs> good to place to put a comma. A break, okay. Martin, uh, we'll come back in just just a few minutes. Stick around. I'm talking with uh, Martin Shanehals. He is an anthropologist from Appalachian State University, formerly of uh, Columbia University, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of a new book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia. We'll be back with more right after this. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad America, Council. your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in checker money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian Residence, add $3. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner program.com The Tom Sumner program.com This is Congressman Dan Kildee and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is an anthropologist from Appalachian State University with a new book called Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined by Martin Shanehals. Martin, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you. Um, Just before the break, we were uh, just starting to get an anthropology lesson, and and I thought we'd continue a little bit more because in a lot of ways the book itself is an anthropology lesson. And uh, you pick apart these three distinct things, but there are other things that are that are factored in. Like you mentioned uh, that we basically, as human beings, would form an egalitarian society, and and yet we've evolved a little differently than that. Um, but yet you talk about in chapter chapter seven that there's politics in egalitarian society mm-hmm. is right so, sorry i i was just going to say politics has uh, become kind of a dirty word lately <laughs> um how does it how does it play out in uh in utopia well, hopefully a lot differently from the way that it plays out today. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> you're quite right that it, it has become a dirty word. But it, it doesn't have to be. Uh, part, part of, to go back to the beginning of your question, the way that we were, um, uh, humans, we, we lived in small groups and we were cooperative and egalitarian for 95% of our time on Earth. And that, that's a fact. Sometimes my friends think I'm just imagining that if I say it because it sounds so unreal, and yet it's a, it's a reality. Um, and what that says is that in all domains, then, we can live the, the same way, and that includes in politics. So in politics, I started thinking about... Um, how to, how to get away from kind of entrenched power. The, the first thing that's really important is that I do away with money in my utopia so that politicians can't accumulate money for their own self-interest. Um, and I challenge status differences in every way possible. And one of the ways that I do that is by making the people who are the politicians in my utopia into people who are volunteers and only temporary volunteers for political positions, kind of like a, a jury. I don't know if you've ever been on a jury, and there are some bad things about being on a jury. Um, but one good thing about juries in American life is that they're not an entrenched um, kind of power structure. We go on to a jury, we do our duty, and then we're off and we're gone and probably never see the people we're with again. And 
um, that has all kinds of virtues because it means that we don't build on our power base. We can't trade it for money in any kind of way. Um, Martin, almost rarely. Martin, I need to, to jump in here because I'm having a little trouble with the, the phone line. You're starting to become a little distorted. I think we probably need to move over to oh. uh, plan B. Can, can we disconnect and, and you call me back? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, please do. Okay, Talk to I'll you in a minute. call you back. I'm talking with uh, Martin Shanehals. He is an anthropologist and the author of a book called Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. We're going to reconnect with him in just a moment so that we can uh, clean up the audio just a little bit. And, uh, and then we'll press on and talk some more about uh, these different aspects that are uh, included in the book. Um, coming up during the 11 o'clock hour, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, Mueller report, speaking of politics. Ah, there he is. Hi, Martin. Welcome back. Hi, thank you. I hope that's better. Yeah, it's it's better. We we got a new phone system uh, a week or two ago, and we're still working the bugs out. You sounded great oh, okay. for a little while, and then it started getting staticky, and so I thought, well, we better go with uh, with Plan B so that uh, uh, we can hear better. Anyway, thanks for uh, calling back, and uh, and thanks for your patience. Um, sure. Okay. Now we we ended on a comma. Where were we going? Um, we were talking about politics and juries and the fact that politicians in Utopia won't get money or other status rewards for their service. They'll be a lot like juries where you are temporarily put on, you serve, and then you rotate off. And um, that's one way that the administration of Utopia will work. And, and some people would argue that the Founding Fathers actually sort of intended that. They they expected that, you know, farmers would take off and go to Washington and serve for a couple of years, maybe a couple of terms, and then go back yeah. to their regular lives. I, I don't think they really imagined career politicians. Right. Exactly. They didn't. And... Um, you know, what? what's happened in politics often happens in institutions today when, when, when the measures of, that we use in our lives for whether we're happy or not are um, money and power, then, of course, it is no surprise that people strive for money and power and use politics as supreme means of, of getting that um, to achieve money and power. But if you take away money and power as the currency, um, both literally and metaphorically, in utopia, then you, you change the whole dynamics of what makes people operate. And my talking about the past is one way in saying we're capable of doing it, but it's also, if you, if you look around, there's so many things that people do as volunteers um, and as, as really kind People, you know, I think about the people who went to 9/11 after 9/11, just volunteered their services, or um, all the kinds of small charitable acts that people do that don't get recognized enough. We focus on um, 
the horrible things that are going on, which need attention, but I think there are a lot of good things, small acts of kindness that also happen that show that even in today's society, we're capable of acting for reasons other than just personal gain. Well, we've talked about politics and money, but what about what about work? There is currently a uh, a concern by a number of different uh, sociologists and economists that technology is going to pretty much automate the entire workforce yes. in the very near future. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's a justifiable concern. I am originally from Michigan and family on both sides there, back there for generations, and we're all outside of Michigan, um, partly because of the um, economics of the auto industry. And so I know I don't have to tell your listeners and you what's happened um, in the Detroit and Flint area. Sure. Um, that that is a trend in what automation I, I remember I worked after college on the west side of Chicago and I went to a factory um, and my job was to try to get uh, jobs entry-level jobs for young people who had dropped out of high school so a really challenging job I went to this factory that made shampoo and the owner said last year we had 200 full-time workers here this year and from now on, we have one worker, one person to control the robots and the automation. Right. Wow. And you're right. That's, That's a pretty dramatic shift. And, yeah, so it's it sounds like a really dire and horrible thing, and it is the way that we're all experiencing it, but it doesn't have to be. Because if you think about it, I always like to think, let's, let's just say hypothetically that all work was done by robots. We could face a fork in the road, and one fork would be to say, well, there's no more work, so even though robots are doing all the work and pr we're producing more than ever before, none of us can have any access to it. It'll just, food will have to sit and rot, and cars will have to go undriven and everything else because none of us has a job so we can't buy the thing that the robots are making that's one thing that we could say and it's a terrible thing to say the other would be to take the other fork in the road and say well if there's lots produced and we don't have to do any work for it why don't we redistribute it to everyone if robots are doing all of the work it makes absolute sense to me and yet we don't talk about that because we're so grounded in the idea that we've all grown up with that the only way that most of us get what we need is through work. And it doesn't have to be that way, and it won't be that way as we become more automated and efficient. And on my taking the good fork in the road, what that says is we're going to reach a time very soon and in many ways we've already reached a part of it, where most of us won't have to work in order to live. We can receive the basic, and in my utopia, I guarantee the basics of subsistence to everyone. So food, housing, 
shelter, clothing, health care, given to everyone, so that then when we engage in creative activities, things we today call work, we do it because we want to do so, not because we have to do so. And, the, and thus and, uh, work becomes an object of, of um, reward and happiness and, and not something yeah. we do simply for subsistence. Exactly. Work becomes an object of pleasure, which it always should be. But today, because we make a deal in which you only can survive if you work, and only if you, you're coerced to do so by the fear of, um, you know, not being able to live if you don't work. And I know we all grow up with that idea, but because of that idea, it gives people power over us um, to coerce us. And it makes work into work. What really makes work oftentimes unfun is the fact that it's coerced and it's not something that we choose to do. Well, yeah, because I, I the, the, whole, the goal... She said, I love history. I love reading history textbooks, but the minute a professor assigns one, the fact of it's being an obligation <laughs> makes me hate it. Right. Well, and it, I think we all relate to that. Right? But sure, we're all taught that, uh, you know, in order to have things, we need to have money. And if we want to have a lot of things and really cool things, we got to have a lot of money. So rather than yeah. pursuing our our interests, our gifts, our talents, we go after something that's going to make the most money, very often doing things that are unpleasant to us. Yeah, exactly. And very often um, consuming as a kind of compensation because we work so hard and we feel that if we buy things that that'll make up for the the unhappiness and the burden and the sacrifices that we make for work. But we don't have to be pulled apart that way, where where we have to work and then we compensate by um, consuming. We can put them together and say, let's work because we want to do so, and let's make work more like... I. I, I'm a musician, so I think in musical metaphors, but more like a performance where both sides are together at the same place, enjoying interacting with each other. Both sides meaning the consumer and the worker, or in this case, the performer and the audience, um, so that the performance is something that uh, the worker wants to do, whatever his or her creative passion is, and there's an audience there to give feedback and affirmation to the worker directly for his or her creations. And that can mean, you know, a scientist, rather than being alone in a lab um, and having no feedback from people, tests his ideas um, by talking about them to a group of um general people who are interested in science and gets reactions from them and comments from them. I, I have a good friend who's a scientist who said he can't really formulate his own ideas without talking them through with other people. And I know that's so true for so many of us, and yet we've created a world in which so often we work um, in a vacuum, not 
you in a media sense, since you're always talking to people, but so many other occupations, there's a disconnect between the affirmation that we receive from people for what we do and um, our our own kind of common situation. Well, I'm glad you brought and up so, science because there's such a disconnect with science. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with with science in particular. Well, there are a number of different different aspects to this. One is that a lot of people in science have a tendency to to use uh, words and language that isn't as accessible to people as it could or should yes. be. They run around calling salt NACL and stuff. Yes. But but it it ends up being filtered through government agencies and, and um, you know, other people and not often shared as transparently as it could or should be. Absolutely, and that's a huge, huge problem because it's a problem not just for those of us who aren't formal chemists or things like that, although it is a problem for us because we don't know what's going on um, in the larger world of science and how um, various kinds of pollutants might affect us or other things like that. Um, But think about in medicine. So many times doctors do things that we don't understand and we don't know about. And with the Internet, people are becoming much, much more engaged and knowledgeable themselves. And there are self-help groups of people with various kinds of illnesses, um, with people giving advice to each other. Sometimes I think um, there's so much knowledge that people have at a folk level um, that doesn't get shared in our society because we deem certain people to be the experts who know everything, and the rest of us are the people who are non-experts who don't know anything. And in fact, you know, common sense and folk medicine um, or folk knowledge, while it's not a substitute for science, there are a lot of times when it has a great deal of wisdom. I've often found with my students they're sometimes the best questioners of me, far better than any anthropological colleague, because they don't feel bound by the jargon of the discipline and by the things that the discipline takes for granted. They just listen and they ask questions. And we've, we've um, had a, I have an... to say that's what I've tried to do in my book, is to make it as accessible as possible. We've had an interesting... And invite the general reader to read it. We, we've had an interesting phenomenon here in the Flint area because of the uh, breakdown in the municipal mm-hmm. water system that everybody's yeah. heard about, and and it's it's being described as the citizen scientist. Yes, exactly. And it's it's exactly. a real interesting thing because people have found themselves, you know, learning things that you know they they didn't know before or didn't have any interest in, but they they got interested for obvious reasons and started exploring and doing research and now they're all running around talking about all all of these elements and you know chemicals and bacteria and parts per billion and you know it's it's really quite an interesting phenomenon yes exactly i know about that of course and and i think that citizen scientist for me is a real hero um and a real model because that's how I'd like science to be. There, there's so many people who are talented 
um, in various ways that they don't even acknowledge. And, you know, we create this kind of expert culture or in other things, the celebrity culture that says only a few people at the top are any good um, and they should get all the attention. And that's a false premise that only a few people are good at anything. And what you're describing is exactly what I would love to be the case in all fields where all of us can be citizen scientists. All of us can be citizen politicians and much more engaged in the policymaking um, if it's the political sphere. What a great way to, to segue to learning in utopia. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it was just so like we can... just like we planned it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we did plan it that way, didn't we? Planned it way ahead. Um, yeah, and I think you can probably guess what I'm going to say about learning, given what I've said about work. It, I, I never understand why, to start with, we don't talk about how to make school more enjoyable. I think what it is is, you know, our tradition, our puritanical tradition in America that says pleasure is somehow bad. And anything that's good for you has to be <laughs> unpleasurable. Um, that's the puritanical model. And, and school, if, if somehow it's enjoyable, there's something wrong with it. I mean, I even know that there are probably a few listeners who might be thinking, oh, he's another one of those leftists is going to make school fun. We don't want that. Um, but why Yeah, everybody not? gets a blue ribbon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as kids, we love to learn, as young kids. And once we go to school, so often it becomes a, a burden, and, and with the testing mania today, a horrible burden. And it well, that's because need to be that way. So I want school like work. Education to be, too often is a matter of providing both the questions and the answers instead of the answers to the questions that already exist. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. School is so much, and I'm going to borrow a word from one of my own students. I have to give him credit because it's a great word. He said, why, when we do chemistry experiments in school, do we already know the answer? Chemists don't do that in real life. Why can't school be more like, you know, real science, where you do an experiment to find something out? And he's precisely right. We do, school is like a simulation. That was his word. It's not the real thing of learning. It's a kind of going through the motions. And as you said, we, you know, we don't ask enough questions. And the, the questions that teachers often ask are ones they already know the answer to. Um, and that's okay to test our knowledge. But I like to ask questions as a teacher um, that I don't know the answer to and then guide the students in mutual inquiry about it. And that makes it much more real. It makes school much more authentic and meaningful and less like a kind of game that you're just getting through to get a degree, to get a job, to get out, to make money, to <laughs> retire and die. School should have its own genuine purpose as pleasurable and as socially significant. And what you said, going back to the citizen scientist, of course, I love that model for schooling. I think that schools, and we do that sometimes in schools, 
have students engage in things outside of school where they do research. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic as well as artists, musicians, candidates and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, 
stay safe and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour is uh, the author of a new book called Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. He is uh, an anthropologist at uh, Appalachian State University, Martin Shanehalls. Martin, welcome back, and thanks uh, for spending this hour with me today. This is fun. Yeah, it is fun. Thanks, Tom. And, and we had just um, beautifully segued into learning and got mm-hmm. cut, got cut off by the uh, by the break there because uh, we were so carried away with the conversation, and we were just mm-hmm. about to segue into gender, sexuality, and love in Utopia. Yes, yes exactly. So, um, and, and in I the guess same if I if, if I could kinds of if if I could Martin. If, if yep. I could, if I could put this question to you, mm-hmm. if the things that we've been talking about this hour, you know, doing things, um, you know, changing the way economics works and how it impacts politics and and work and and our attitude toward learning and and having it be a, a much more open and transparent uh, kind of thing, if those things happen and it's generating more happiness. Does that mm-hmm. then free us up for these other interpersonal relationships that seem so vexing sometimes? Yes, it does, and in many ways. One that I want to start out with is just the kind of obvious one, but <clears throat> needs to be said, and that is, in today's world, we're so often pulled in different directions. We're pulled toward work because we want to be a success at work, um, and then we end up neglecting family and friends and our social life, or if we indulge in our social life, we think of it as, as an indulge, indulgence um, in some ways and that it's coming at the expense of our career success. And, well, a um, good example of that... Division, a good example of that, Martin, is is when people said that um, women paid a price in pay equity for having yeah. children. Yes, exactly. It's something that uh, affects women and affects the way that women have been treated in the workplace. And the U.S. in particular has done just a horrible job of accommodating the idea that women and men with children can be both parents and spend time with their kids and be successful at work. With the number of hours that people work has gone up rather than down. And, you know, in the big urban centers like New York City, there, there are people working 60, 70, 80. I've read people routinely working 100 hours a week. 
That's horrible. And why are they doing it? They're doing it because we've said that success at the workplace is the pinnacle of happiness and that you have to sacrifice home life in order to get that success. And I want to eradicate that kind of a division between work and the home place. First of all, by making work into something that you do because you want to do it. Secondly, and this might sound like a little bit of a radical idea, but um, we've separated out the workplace from the home. That's what industrialization did. Right. But I want to go back to, not, not actually to return to the past, but return to a, an interesting idea of the past that we can either not only work at home, but work with family and friends, and that work um, should integrate much more organically with family and and friends, um, and that it will once we make work into a sphere of activity that is non-obligatory. If, if we don't go back to an agrarian society or culture, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is, is really the best example we've had in history of it, um, you know, these small family farms and, you know, people, right. people would have a big family and the family, you know, chopped down trees and made firewood and, and fed right. animals and, you know, collected eggs and, you know, did all of that stuff. And it was subsistence. Your work was survival. And, mm-hmm. and, and it was all self-contained. You know, you, you went mm-hmm. out and gathered uh, crops and, you know, picked crops and processed them and, and canned things. And, and then you had food. And you ate and slept right there, and mm-hmm. and it was all in the family. And like you said, we separated that when industrialization came along and, and the advent of, of cities and, and centralizing where people lived and worked and um, separating home from work and, and all of that. Um, but if we don't go back to a more agrarian existence, which some people are actually advocating and doing Mm -hmm. what does work look like is it is Um, it the musician in the audience the actor in the audience the uh you know the scientist at a at a town hall uh you know uncovering new discoveries yeah i'd like to have the scientist before she or he makes the discovery and comes to a conclusion and just comes and tells us about it, I'd like to have them raising some of the questions in their own mind, putting them out for all of us at a kind of town hall um, in a public space, and engaging all of us in thinking about those same questions um, with the scientist. Um, And as I said, I know the first kind of gut response on the part of many people is going to be, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not possible. How can we have anything to say? And yet, as you said, there are citizen scientists who are really interested, and if you involve them in the process, it's great for them, but it's also great for the scientist, because I know as a, as a professor that it's when I talk through my ideas, and this has been true for this book as well. I've talked through a lot of the ideas and had friends challenge me, and m- many of the things I put in the book have come out of those challenges. Um, 
humans communicate. We love to communicate. And yet the way that we work so often keeps us isolated. Even if we're working in an office um, with other people, everyone's in their own cubicle and no one's communicating. Yeah, well, I've seen people. I've seen people at the same table in a restaurant sending each other texts. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which drives me crazy. <laughs> I know, me too. Um, Martin, we've got about three and a half minutes left, and, and I want to touch on something before we wrap it up very quickly, if we sure. could, and that has to do with transition. Do you address how we get people that, you know, to to give up their oil wells and, you know, get off their their holdings and and yeah you know embrace this kind of a concept well the the short answer is um that's for book two <laughs> um the, uh, but i also would add that some of the things that i talk about in the book i'm definitely aware of transitions especially in work where i think we're going to reach a point very soon where there won't be enough work for all of us because of automation and we'll have to make a choice whether to do the humane thing redistribute uh production to everyone i mean the the fruits of production and then use the time creatively to change the nature of work well universal um, basic income is already being talked about as a as a kind yeah, of yeah it is stop gap. it is and, and it should be Martin, we've got uh, just just about two minutes left, and I always want to. I feel like we could go on for another hour, but um, but yeah. we have to we have to move on. Um, I, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. It's called "Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia: um, Equality Reimagined." by anthropologist Martin Shanehalls. And, and Martin, um, do you have a website for those of us that might be anxiously awaiting book two? Um, I don't have a website, <laughs> but I'd love to give, if it's okay with you, I can give my email address. Certainly. I'd love to be in contact with people. I'm easy to talk to and enjoy that kind of interaction. So it's three letters, M as in Martin, D as in Donald, S as in Sam, and then N E W Y O R K. So M D S N E W Y O R K, no space in there, at gmail.com. The, the email is also in the book on the first page, and I invite uh, reviewers to give their own ideas because I'm living out the ideas of the book and saying, I can't do this by myself. I don't want to. I wanted to jumpstart the discussion and hope people will join me. Well, Martin, it's been uh, a real pleasure, and thank you so much for spending this time with me. I can't believe how it, fast it's gone by. It has. It's gone by way too fast. Thank, thank you, Tom. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. That was uh, Martin Shanehalls. He uh, is an anthropologist on the faculty of Appalachian State University. He has previously taught at Columbia University, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of The Paradox of Power from 1993 and Intimate Exclusion in 2003. His newest book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, uh, Equality Reimagined, is um, out and available. And we're going to take a uh, short break, and we'll be back 
with... Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner Program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here! <laughs> 